Go ahead and grab a seat. You know, I so appreciate what Miranda said earlier um, in prompting us in worship to be authentic um, in our relationship with God. I don't know if, if you guys feel this way, but for me, like it has been a very, I don't know, like a challenging, odd sort of last several months. And for those of you that don't know me, my personality, like I'm like steady. You hook me up to the heart monitor and it's like not even sure that we're, we're alive most of the time. But what I've found over the last couple of years is like the ups and downs happen so much more frequently. It's like one day, like, man, like, it's great, like, everything is perfect, we are moving in the right direction, and then something happens in the next day, and you're like, man, what happened to yesterday? Um, and I, I think maybe that part of that is just the way that our world is and stuff like that, and so I appreciate what Miranda said, and just that focus that we have to have that when all else fails around us, like, what is left is Jesus, um, and he's the one that we place our hope and trust in. And so I just want to encourage you with that this morning. I know we've got some guests who are here as I look around the room. I see some faces that I don't recognize. And so if you are a guest with us, thanks for being here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bill, and it's my privilege to serve as a lead pastor here at the table. And so if you are a guest with us, if you have not done this yet, um, or if you are here for the very first time, we would absolutely love to connect with you. The easiest way to do that is to have you text the word welcome to 817-755-1668. And what you'll receive back from us is a digital connection card. Um, if you don't want to text us after the service this morning, I'll actually hang out um, at our connection area, so out the doors to the right. Um, would love to, to meet you. We actually have some um, old school hard copies of a guest card that you can fill out there if you'd rather do it by hand. Um, but we want to find out who you are, how we can minister to you and your family, um, when you're ready, we want to let you know the things that we offer as a church so that we can see your faith come alive. Now, that's our desire is that everybody that's a part of the table, that their faith comes alive. That faith isn't just like this thing that we show up at church on Sundays or this thing that's on the shelf when we need it, but it is that thing that is guiding everything that we do in our lives. That's what we hope to see. Um, and so we'd love to let you know opportunities outside of the rows of this room and getting into circles to get connected with other people because that's where we feel like growth really happens. Um, and so we'd love to, to, to share with you about those kinds of things. Or if you just have any questions about the church or, or anything like that, um, we'd love to visit with you for a few minutes after the service this morning. Melissa talked about it at the front end of our service today, but our students, middle school and high school students, are headed to camp this afternoon. And we have around 70 students uh, who are going to be headed off to camp. And so many of those students are able to go because of your generosity. Um, so for those of you that gave to send kids to camp, thanks for doing that. Um, you know, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago in the message that Paul talks about this at the end of the book of Philippians. He said, hey, I want you to give, talking about supporting his ministry, so that credit goes on your account. Right? And so we talked about how somewhere in heaven is a list of people that have been impacted because of your generosity. And so for those of you that gave specifically to send kids to camp, someday there's going to be a kid's name associated with yours that goes on your account because of what happens this week. And so it's just really kind of a cool thing to think about. So for those of you that gave, um, thanks for doing that. And I want to pray for us and pray specifically for our kids. Um, and then we'll jump into the message this morning, okay? So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thanks for your goodness and love that you give to us. 
God, in the midst of the, the struggles that we face, the challenges that we face, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of um, your grace and your love, but in the midst of just the challenges that we face, the ups and downs of life, we know that you are good. We know that you never let us down. And so in those moments, Father, I pray that we would just continue to trust in you. Father, thanks for the students who are headed off to camp this week. And, and Father, I pray that in the midst of the heat, that you would be at work in their lives, drawing them to yourself. God, I pray that we would see the lives of our students changed as a result of this week. Father, be with all of our leaders who are going. Give them strength and energy and sensitivity to what you're doing in the lives of our students. Thanks for um, just their willingness to serve in that capacity. Father, I just pray that you continue to bless us with your presence this morning as we spend some time in your word. Teach us, challenge us, help us to think. Um, help us to take what we're going to talk about and apply it to our lives so that we can be the people that you desire us to be and um, make the impact in the lives of people that you desire us to have as your people. Um, so Father, I pray that you would just continue to bless us this morning, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I wonder how many of you have a hard time admitting that you are wrong. We probably all do on some level. I certainly do, and it was interesting. I was kind of thinking about this a little bit, and I'll, I'll be honest. Like, I even in those moments where I know I'm wrong and I'm willing to admit that I was wrong, sometimes I justify why I was wrong, right? Even with the little thing. Well, yeah, I was wrong, but based on the information that I had, that's why I said that. Or I was wrong, but I didn't, I didn't know everything, right? So it's almost like justifying, like I'm really right in my own mind even though I was really wrong. But sometimes it's really important to admit well, you're wrong. So this morning, we are continuing our series of messages called Deep Cuts with the subtitle, The Stories They Didn't Teach Us in Sunday School. And so if you were with us last week, you know this. These are sort of these random stories that we don't talk about very much. For many of you, you may have never heard these stories at all. And when I say stories, understand I mean real-life stories, stories that actually happened um, so they're not fictional stories, non-fiction stories, but stories in the Old Testament that we haven't heard about much, or maybe it's a story that if you're reading through in a Bible plan, you come up against these stories, and you're like, I have no idea what to do with this, and you just keep going. Now, what is ironic, though, about the title of this series, which I was highly involved in the title of this series, the subtitle specifically, is because I grew up in church, the reality is I heard every one of the stories that we're going to talk about in this series growing up in Sunday school. So I was taught these stories in Sunday school, even though I'm not really sure that I was taught the actual meaning and purpose of these stories. Because you think about it, like with the story that we started off with last week, what are you going to teach an eight-year-old kid about the assassination of a fat guy who was left in the upper chamber of his house alone for hours because people think he's going to the bathroom for a really long time. Like, what's the age-appropriate lesson for that? I mean, honestly, the only thing I can come up with is God loves left-handed people. So if you are left-handed, it's great. These are really odd stories, quite interesting in the details that we find, but yet challenging to understand. And so because they are challenging to understand, sometimes we get them wrong. 
James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should desire to be teachers, because teachers get judged more harshly. And so what James is talking about there is those people who are teachers of the Word of God need to be really, really careful to make sure that we understand the Word of God the best that we possibly can so that we're not teaching people the wrong thing or something that God is not actually saying. We're not leading people astray because we'll be judged more harshly for that. And so I have, on some level, been, as a primary responsibility that I have, been teaching the Bible for 25 years. My entire adult life, that has been a primary responsibility that I've had. And I look back over some of the things that I have said over the years, and I think to myself, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I hope nobody really paid attention when I said that. I hope that went in one ear and out the other because I'm not really sure that that's right. I think I got that one wrong. In fact, I've, I've said this before. I have never once read anyone or listened to anyone that I agree with 100% of the time. And that includes me. So sometimes we get things wrong. Now, having said all of that, the reason I said that was to say this. Today we are looking at a story that I think we've gotten wrong. And what I want to do today is tell you why we've gotten it wrong, what we should actually learn from it. It's the story of Deborah, found in the book of Judges in Judges chapter 4. So if you do have a Bible, I would invite you to turn there, Judges chapter 4. So Judges is in the Old Testament, so if you get past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... Those are all the first five books of the Bible, what's referred to as the Pentateuch. You get past that, and then you've got Joshua, and right after that is the book of Judges. And so I want to read for us the story of Deborah. What I'm going to do is read the first ten verses, and then we'll skip down um, into verse 17, and I'll finish out the section by reading verses 17 through 21. So if you have a Bible, Judges chapter 4, I'll start in verse 1. If you don't have it, it's going to be on the screen. Or if you are a version Bible app user, if you know what that is, you don't know what that is, ask me after the service and I'll make sure that you get it because it's got some really helpful things in there for us. But if you have the Version Bible app, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. It includes the scriptures in our live event. Okay, let me preface the reading by saying this. In the section that I'm going to read today are a lot of strange names that I might pronounce differently throughout the message this morning. Um... That's because I don't know how to say them exactly. My friend Daniel was here last week. He is an Old Testament expert, and he said in the message, I'm not really sure how to say these things. So if he doesn't know how to say them, certainly I don't know how to say them either. And in case I stumble over them, know that they're hard. So let's jump in. Judges chapter 4, the interesting story of Deborah. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth of the nation. See, there you go. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, because Jabin had 900 iron chariots, and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. Deborah, the prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. She summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh, and Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord God of Israel commanded you? Go deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites, 
and Zebulonites. Then I will, urge, I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots, and his infantry at the Wadi Kishon to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. I will gladly go with you, she said, but you will not receive honor on the road you are about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kedesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah was also, with, went, also went with him. Now down to verse 17. Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there was peace between King Jabar of Hazer and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord, come in with me, don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she discovered him with a blanket, and she covered him with a blanket. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered it again. Then uh, he said to her, Stand at the entrance to the tent. If a man comes and asks you, Is there a man here? Say no. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently to Sisera. She hammered the tent peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. And we read that, and we say, what in the world do we do with that story? Let me give you a summary of what's happening, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, and then we'll dive into some of what is happening here. So this is, obviously, it's in the book of Judges, which my friend Daniel, who's here last week, kind of introduced what's happening in the book of Judges for us. It's a time that is known as a period when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The reason being is because there was no central leader in Israel. So this is a time after Moses and Joshua, who are very much seen as the leaders of the people of Israel. It's a time between, uh, between Moses and Joshua, and they had kings in Israel, so there's no king, there's no centralized leader. It's a period where people were crying out for a king when they should have seen God as their king. And so what they did is that they followed after other gods all the time. As a result of their idolatry, God would allow them to be oppressed by another people group in the region for a period of time. Then they would cry out to God. He would raise up a, a leader or a judge who would then restore Israel back to strength and give them victory over their enemies. That's generally what happens in the book. And so what we found here in verse 1 of Judges chapter 4 is the people once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so this time, they are oppressed by Jabin, who was a Canaanite, whose leader of his army was a man named Sisera. And so Jabin oppressed Israel for 20 years. It's then that we're introduced to Deborah, who was a judge and a prophetess. So the word of the Lord comes to Deborah, and she sends for Barak, and she says, hey, God has told me to tell you, you are to raise up an army to go into battle against Jabin and Sisera, and God is going to lead them into your hands. And he says, uh, I don't really want to go by myself, but I'll go if you go. And Deborah says, okay, I'll gladly go with you, but as a result of your lack of obedience, God is going to hand Sisera over to a woman. You're not going to have any glory in battle because Sisera is going to be um, given over to the hand of a woman. So they go out into battle. 
Israel has some success in battle. Then Sisera escapes the battlefield, trying to save his life. He finds himself in the tent of a woman named Jael. And so he is there thinking nothing is going to happen. He thinks he's safe there. But Jael then, as he falls asleep, takes a tent peg, pounds it through his temple, and that is the end of Sisera. And again, what do we do with this story? I want to tell you how I was taught this story, because this is one that we have gotten wrong. What I was told about this story is that the only reason that Deborah was in the position that she was in is because there was no qualified man to lead the people of Israel at the time. If there was a qualified man to lead at the time, then that man would have been in the place of Deborah. But because there was no qualified man to lead, that's why Deborah was in the position that she was in. But in spite of it all, God still called a man named Barak to lead the, the army of Israel into battle. But Barak had a problem. He was a wimp. And he said he's not going to go by himself. And so Deborah had to go with him. And as a result of that, because of Barak's fear, he didn't get the glory in the battle. It was given to another woman named Jael. And the entire point of this story, this is how I learned this story. The point of the story is, guys, we need to be strong. We need to be courageous. We need to step up and lead. We cannot be like Barak. I wasn't the only one who was told that. Lots of men are taught that story. That the purpose of Deborah's story is to tell us as men to step up and lead. But it's not just men who heard that message, because women heard that message too. Now, while I didn't necessarily hear this specifically, if the message given to men is step up and lead, be strong, that's your place, then the reverse of that is heard by women. You are not a leader. You are not supposed to lead. You have to leave room for men to lead. That's the way God ordained it. And I want you to know that that understanding of Deborah's story is wrong. I want to be super clear, just for anyone who has ever heard that before, that is not the point. So the question is, if that's not the point, then what is the point? And so what I want to do is talk about why this idea of men need to step up and lead, that's not the point of this passage. I'll show you why. And then I want to talk about what we actually do with it, how we take this and apply it to our lives. What I want to do first is ask and answer three questions that help us understand why that men need to step up and lead interpretation is wrong. The first question is this. Was Deborah in an unusual position as a prophetess and judge? This question is really important to answer because this idea men need to step up and lead is really based on the fact that it's so unusual for Deborah to be in this role of prophetess and judge that she was only there because there was no man who was qualified to do what she was doing. And so the question is, is that true? 
Now, in part, what I would say is, yes, it was unusual for Deborah to be in the role of prophetess and judge. But part of the reason it was so unusual is because she lived in a highly patriarchal society, meaning that men were always seen as the leaders. So I do think it was a little bit unusual that she was in that role as prophetess and judge, but it wasn't unheard of. And I don't think it had anything to do with not having any qualified men to lead. Now, when we read something like this in Scripture, something that breaks the pattern, certainly breaks a cultural pattern, we should always stop and ask the question, what's happening? Why is this the case? We actually see this several times in the Old Testament where the focus is on women and the significant role of women in the history of the nation of Israel. And so this is one where we should look at it and say, what is happening? Why is this the case? It was unusual in light of the culture for Deborah to be in a role of prophetess and judge, but it was not unheard of. And it had nothing to do with the fact that there weren't qualified men to lead. Because we actually read in the Old Testament a few different places where there is a reference to a prophetess. In the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, Miriam is referred to as a prophetess. Miriam is Moses' sister. So Moses being the leader of the people of Israel at the time, the one who rescued them out of Egypt, she is referred to as a prophetess and was certainly seen as a leader among the people of Israel at the time. But she was not a leader because there was no qualified man to lead. We have Moses and the other brother Aaron. And we have people like Joshua and Caleb who were leaders during that same time. Another woman that we read about, a prophetess named Hudla in 2 Kings 22.14. Her story doesn't get a lot of publicity, but what's interesting about her story is that she was a prophetess serving during a time when there were other more prominent male prophets who were being used by God at the same time. So she was not a prophetess because no man could do it. In the New Testament, we read about Jesus as a baby being introduced to a prophetess named Anna in Luke 2.36. But right after that, we read Jesus being introduced to a man named Simeon. And while the angel Gabriel showed up to Mary to tell her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. Just prior to that story, the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah, the priest, and tells him that he's going to be the father of John the Baptist. At the end of the Gospels, the story of Jesus, we find that Mary is the first, uh, as a, the first witness to the resurrection, the one told by Jesus to go tell the disciples what she had seen. But she wasn't chosen to be the first witness because there was no man qualified to be that, because if that were the case, then what does that say about somebody like Peter, who was the leader of the disciples and the leader of the early church? Or somebody like John, who was probably Jesus' best friend? So yes... It was unusual for Deborah to be in this role of prophetess and judge. But that was because of the culture that she lived in. But yet at the same time, she wasn't in that role because there was no men qualified to lead. Second question. Why did Barak want Deborah to go with him into battle? Again, this one's really important to, to, to think through. 
So the word of the Lord comes to Deborah. She calls for Barak and says, hey, God has said you're supposed to gather an army to go into battle against Jabin and Sisera, and he's going to lead them into your hands. And what was his response? I don't want to go unless you go. And so the question is, why did Barak want Deborah to go with him? I will tell you what I was told. The reason that he wanted Deborah to go is because he was a wimp and he was hiding behind a skirt, which is offensive on all kinds of different levels. So the question is, is that actually true or is there something else that's happening? I think that in part, Barack was scared. But he was understandably scared. Sisera had 900 iron chariots. On paper, the army didn't stand a chance. At the same time, history told Barack, if God's not going to go with us, regardless of the size of our army, regardless of what the other forces look like, we don't stand a chance anyway. So how do I know that God is going to show up on the battlefield so that he's going to do what he said he would do? I take the prophetess with me. That's the symbolic uh, symbol, the symbolic symbol that says the presence of God is coming. But yet at the same time, I also wonder if there's something else that's happening. Now, we don't know this for sure. Just like we don't know that Barak was this wimp who was hiding behind a skirt, we don't know this for sure, but maybe, maybe he was a chauvinist. So when the word of the Lord comes through this prophetess, he is saying, in his mind, I can't trust you. You're a woman. How do I know that this is actually what God told you? Maybe you're really emotional and you want God to say this, but he didn't really do it. Now, we don't know that, but it's entirely possible that because of his view of male leadership, which was embedded in his culture, he heard the word from a prophetess and said, I don't know that I can believe you. The only way that I can really trust you is if you go with me. Third question. Was Jael the hero just because Barak refused to step up? Again, this one's really interesting. So what we find is because of Barak's lack of obedience, he said, Deborah, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. She said, I'll be glad to go with you. But because you didn't obey, then God is going to give somebody else the glory in battle, and Sisera is going to be handed over to a woman. What's interesting, at that point in the story, if we're just reading it for the very first time and we knew nothing else, we would assume that Deborah is the hero. But it's not Deborah who is the hero. As we continue reading through the story, ultimately what we find is that it is this random, this is how the text presents it, this random woman named Jael, she becomes the hero. Incidentally, you think about this when we read through that before. Do you think, like, how could she do what she did? I've told you this before. I try to picture myself in these Bible stories when I read through them. Like, how would I handle this situation if I was there? And I think, man, I would be really nervous with a tent peg and a hammer. I would be thinking, I'm going to hit myself in the hand and miss completely. And then what happens? So how could this 
woman do what she did? Interestingly enough, I'm glad you asked. According to the semi-nomadic culture of the day, women were in charge of putting up tents. She had a lot of experience with a tent peg and a hammer. In fact, she had probably been training most of her life for this moment. And she took her skills and put them to good use. But the question is, is the only reason that Jael is the hero is because Barak refused to step up? Now, in part, that's the case. The text tells us that, right? It says, because you did not obey, God's going to hand Sisera over into the hands of a woman. So that's in part the case, but yet at the same time, I think something bigger is happening. This is an incredibly strong message given to Sisera and to Jabin and to the rest of the world. Sisera was a mercenary, a hired killer. Now, I want you to think, take all of the movie references that you have about mercenaries, the John Wicks and all the other people, think about the characteristics of those people, insert them into a culture that is highly male-dominated. When Sisera walked into Jael's tent, he had no fear at all. He knew that his presence alone should scare her to death. There is no way that she's ever going to do anything to me. But then she took the tent peg and the hammer and nailed his head to the ground. The reason being, God sometimes does things differently. This was a message to Sisera, to Jabin, to the world that God uses who he wants for his purposes. Because throughout, especially the Old Testament, we see this over and over again. God just doing things differently. 1 Corinthians one twenty seven in the New Testament tells us God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. In the context of that's referring to the gospel, the truth about Jesus, that as we sometimes think about it, it just doesn't make sense that this would be how we have a relationship with God. But throughout the entire Bible, we see this pattern of God just doing things backwards, things that we would not expect. And that's part of God's pattern here. So I want you to know, the idea that the point of this story of Deborah is men, we need to step up and lead... That's wrong. So the question is, what do we actually learn from the text? I'll give you three things to consider. First, women have always had and still have a kingdom-building purpose. Women have an important kingdom-building purpose. See, Deborah wasn't in her role just because there was no qualified man to lead. She was in her role as a leader is because she had been called to do what God had uniquely equipped her to do, and she was using her gifts and abilities to do what God had called her to do. And throughout Scripture, which the world of the Bible is a highly patriarchal society, throughout the Bible we see women being used by God for His purposes. 
We see in the Old Testament with somebody like Esther, from the book of Esther, she was used by God to preserve God's people. In the New Testament, we read about Aquila, who is always, uh, Priscilla, who is always listed alongside of her husband Aquila. She's most of the time listed first, which is a more prominent position. And we find that they discipled Apollos and many others. They were viewed as leaders in the early church. We just finished a series working through the book of Philippians, which we read about Phoebe, who was a leader in the church at Philippi, referred to as a servant, which is probably better understood as deaconess. The church probably met in her home, and she was the one who took the letter that we know as the book of Romans from the Apostle Paul and delivered it to the church at Rome. Women have a significant, important, vital, kingdom-building role. And it is important that I say that very clearly today. You may not be aware of this. I have to say that today because of the message that is out in the world of the church and the debates that are going on outside of the walls of our church in the world of the church where that message is not being communicated and oftentimes the opposite of that message is actually being communicated. So that's the first thing that we should learn from this, that women have a vital role in God's kingdom building plan. Number two is this, we should trust and obey what God said. We should trust and obey what God said. This is what we learned from Barak. What I was taught is men don't be like Barak. I think the lesson is all of us don't be like Barak. Because when Deborah said to him, hey, this is what God wants you to do, he said, I'm not so sure. But he wasn't alone in that. Next week, we're going to talk about Gideon. When God calls Gideon, his response was, I'm not so sure. Moses, who was called to be the deliverer of the people of Israel out of enslavement in Egypt, when God showed up and talked to him from the burning bush, Moses' response, I'm not so sure. We can't be like that. We should read all of those stories and say, don't be like that. We should trust and obey the word of God. Now, what does that mean for us? It means that we have to do the very best that we can to understand what God's word says, and we take it and apply it to our lives and live it out as consistently as we possibly can. We cannot read through the word of God in the 66 books of the Bible, nor can we hear a message sometimes and think to ourselves, I'm not so sure. It doesn't work that way. It's listening to God and trusting God and being obedient to do everything that God says. But you want to know something that's really fascinating about this story? We would look at Barak, and rightly so, we say he messed up. He did not do what he should have done. But what is fascinating about Barak is that he's listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, for those of you that are not familiar with it, is what we refer to as the Hall of Faith chapter. So it's all the great things that all the great heroes of the faith have done. Hebrews eleven thirty two. what more should I say? Wish I had more time to tell you about Gideon and Barak. We look at it and say, man, you should not have done that. You should have been better. But yet here he is listed as a hero of the faith. What do we understand from that? 
in spite of our fears and doubts, God still uses us. Third lesson that we should learn from this. Thankfully, God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And the weak things to shame the strong. Because that means every one of us has a chance. If God can use someone like Jael, and listen, that's not to say anything about Jael. The way that the text introduces her is she is just sort of this random person, not anything special. And if God can use someone like Barak, he can use someone like you, and he can use someone like me. We should never get to the place in our lives where we say, God can't use someone like me. I'm not strong enough. I'm not courageous enough. I'm too afraid. I have too many doubts. I don't know enough. Because God has always used the foolish things to shame the wise and the weak things to shame the strong. Sometimes we look at these stories of the heroes of the faith and we give them a lot of credit. And it's true, they do a lot of great things. But the great things that they do, it's not really about who they are as much as it is about the God that they serve. And we serve the same God today. See, the point of Deborah's story is not, guys, we need to be tough and strong and lead. The purpose of Deborah's story is God can use all of us for his purposes, as we listen and trust and obey. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take this truth that we've talked about and burn it into our hearts. God, you can use us for your purposes as we surrender ourselves to you. And God, I do pray that you would help us to not be like Barak and say, God, I'm not so sure. But thanks for the hope that we have that in the, in, the, in the midst of our doubts and fears, we know that you can still use us. So Father, have your way in us. Open our eyes to see how you can use us to be, a, as you are at work in the lives of people around us, use us to point people back to you for your honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.